Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, being a part of our worship services here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. We are excited that you are with us this morning. I need to do one thing, uh, just a little housekeeping. Um, when, when, when Ted made the announcement earlier for Awana workers training this afternoon, and I want you to get the impression if you're work, working with Awanas, uh, if you're, it's only for new ones. It is for all of you who are who are working in Awana. So uh, Caroline has got that put together, and so she wants to have all of you there. And uh, being that I know her personally, I knew she would want me to make that announcement and make sure that was clear. So all of you who are in Awana, please make sure that you are at that training at 4 o'clock this afternoon. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 15. We get to turn over to a new chapter. And uh, I know many of you think, wow, we are down to like the last two. And you're right. We are, uh, we are coming into the home stretch now of our study of the Gospel of Mark. And, and today we start and we are going to begin by looking at what happens uh, on the cross. And, and just before that today, and then we'll get to the, the cross in the next couple of weeks. And um, so just be in prayer about that, the Lord willing, as we continue our study through this gospel. Today we're going to, I just want to reset the things just to kind of make sure that all of us are here or are on track from where we were. Last week we finished up Mark chapter 14. And the final passage of Mark 14 is really a, a comparison and a contrast between two different trials that Mark describes to us. He describes the, the, the formal trial of Jesus who was tried by the Sanhedrin. And, and if you recall, that, that, though that trial was, was a formal trial, it was, it was illegal. It was fraught with all kinds of false charges. And, 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 and the people who came and, and testified against Jesus couldn't even get their story straight. And yet in the process of that, Jesus, Jesus affirmed that he truly was the Christ. And he also affirmed that he was the son of the blessed one. And as a result, he was condemned of blasphemy. And what we see is at the end of that trial... Jesus, who, though he is an innocent man, is convicted and is condemned to death. The other trial is taking place at the same time, but it's down below. That, that trial was taking place in Caiaphas' house, but down in the courtyard of the high priest is where Peter finds himself on trial, but this is more of an informal trial. It's not a, it's not a formal one, but he too is being accused of some things, but rightfully so. Jesus was accused falsely. Peter was accused rightfully of being a follower of Jesus of being one of Jesus' own disciples. And what we see is while Jesus is affirming his identity, Peter denies his. Three separate occasions, Peter denies that he even knows the Lord. And at the end of his informal trial, what we see take place is that Peter walks away free. Even though Jesus had been convicted as a guilty man, Peter, Peter was truly the guilty one. And he walks away free. So those are the differences that we see there. And, and, and really, the, the, the main thing that I think is, that carries over into chapter 15 is that that same theme comes up and it is presented for us again. In chapter 15, as we look at it, it's particularly the first 15 verses that we're going to study this morning, that theme of an innocent man being condemned to death while a guilty man who is deserving of death is set free continues. But there's an added twist that we're going to see come into play in our text this morning. Our text reveals to us that Jesus, who is the innocent man, actually becomes the substitute for the guilty man, a man named Barabbas. And in fact, we will see that, that Barabbas only gains his life, he only gains his freedom because Jesus takes his place. But what leads to that substitution and what 
leads to Barabbas' redemption is, is actually a series of very shameful rejections that Jesus suffers. In fact, we will see that at his moment of great crisis, Jesus is rejected by everyone around him and he is left, he's left all alone. Chapter 15 begins in the early hours of the morning on Friday morning of Passion Week. It's the day that we as Christians refer to as Good Friday. But honestly, when we read about what Mark describes as having taken place on that morning, it may be really hard for some of us to imagine how it could be described as good. Let's pick up and begin reading there in verse 1 of Mark chapter 15. There we read these words, Immediately in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should so that he should release rather Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, "What what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And so they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. Lord, on such a beautiful Lord's Day that we're able to come into your house. Lord, we've been able to sing songs about you and the wonderful things that you have done for us, the way you've blessed us. We've been able to even affirm our remembrance of all the things that you have done for us in taking our place and saving us. And now we open our scriptures and we've been able to read them. And now, Father, I pray that as we spend some moments contemplating the truth that is in them, that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you would have us to see this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit might find tender hearts to be able to, to move in and through for your glory and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In full disclosure... This part of the gospel narrative, particularly the story of Barabbas, has always captivated me. It's always, it's always been something that has attracted my attention and it's very difficult for me to, 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 to move past. Um, 
we find not only his story here in Mark 15, but all four gospel writers tell us the story of Barabbas, though not one single writer records one single word that Barabbas ever said. As a matter of fact, from, from even further information that we have and, and, and material historical data, we don't know anything more about Barabbas than what we read in the gospel accounts. Nevertheless, I believe Barabbas' story is the story of all stories. Because it's the story of a, of a sinner's salvation through Jesus' death on Calvary's cross. But before we get to Barabbas and what happened to him, I think we need to consider what Mark tells us happened to Jesus in the early hours of what we refer to as Good Friday. Jesus, as we know, had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been taken and he had been tried by the Sanhedrin, as we mentioned earlier, and he had been convicted of blasphemy. And as Mark tells us there in verse 1, then the, 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 the priests and the scribes and the elders, they all took Jesus, they bound him, and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, just that phrase alone bears some, some consideration because what we come to realize is that Jesus is being handed over to the, the, the Roman governor who was there who ruled over Palestine. And when we recognize that, coupled with the fact that what Mark tells us in chapter 14, that following his condemnation and following his conviction of blasphemy, that, that the Sanhedrin beat him and, and spit on him and humiliated him. Couple that with the fact that Mark tells us that Jesus had been, had, had been uh, sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin. All of that tells us that he had been officially and he had been summarily rejected by the religious leadership of the day. The question is why? Why did the religious leaders hate Jesus so much that they wanted to see him put to death? Well, the point could be made that Jesus, having come on the scene, had, had caused them to, to, to feel as if he was taking their power away from him, that he was a threat to them in some way. And I think to some degree that's absolutely true, but I believe the greater reason that we understand that Jesus was hated and rejected by the religious leadership is because he was he actually forced them to see themselves for who and what they were in fact notice the very first point on your outline the first rejection that we come across in this text this morning is that of the religious leaders and we see that the religious leaders rejected Jesus because he revealed their sin and exposed their hypocrisy he revealed their sin and exposed their hypocrisy. I won't go back and read all of it to you. I would encourage you to make a note on your, to go back and read Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, you find some of the most blistering words that Jesus ever uttered. And he said them to the pious religious authorities of his day. Jesus was speaking to the multitudes there and he told them not to follow the example that had been set for them by the scribes and the Pharisees. He called those Religious leaders, he said, they are blind guides and they are hypocrites. Jesus said that they had shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. He said that anyone that they converted to their belief system and their way of living, Jesus said that they had, had made such a one twice as much the son of hell as they had been before. Jesus exposed the fact that these religious leaders were more concerned about the externals, what was going on on the outside, than they were about what was going on the inside. And in fact, he called them whitewashed tombs. 
in whom he said appear beautiful on the outside but are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness on the inside. Jesus meant no words when it came to the religious leadership of his day. He exposed their sin and he revealed their hypocrisy. And, and in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, Jesus asked this question of them. He says, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had always called out those who had piously set themselves religiously head and shoulders above everybody else. But it wasn't just in what Jesus said. It was also in how he lived that confronted them. Jesus embodied what it meant to show compassion. He embodied what it meant to show mercy and love. You remember, it was Jesus who touched the leper. It was Jesus who healed the sick. It was Jesus who welcomed the outcast into his presence. Jesus demonstrated the heart of God and by his life and through his example, he confronted the self-centered and the self-serving religion that Judaism had become. And as a result, the religious leaders hated him for it. Kent Hughes tells the story of, a, of, a, of a, an African a chief who had gone out and, and, and encountered a missionary in, in, in Africa and the missionary was at his hut and the African chief came in to visit with him and, and he noticed, the chief did, that he, he looked and there was a mirror hanging on a tree right outside the hut of the missionary and he looked in and when he saw himself, what he saw was this face, this really ugly contorted face staring back at him that, with, with war paint on and, and very harsh looking features and when he looked at him, he was, he was shocked and he asked the missionary, he says, who is that man in the tree? And the missionary said, oh, you don't understand, it's, 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 you're seeing a reflection of yourself in the glass. And the African chief said, I, I don't believe that. And so the missionary took the, the mirror down off the tree and gave it to the African chief who then was able to see himself up close in the glass. And then Hughes says that he took that mirror and he threw it to the ground and he broke it into a thousand pieces. And he says, I will not have an, such an ugly person look back at me. <laughs> and so Hughes brings it forward and he says, that is precisely what the Sanhedrin, what the religious leadership of Jesus' day said. They said they, they wanted to dash him who was a mirror to their own souls. And the way that they wanted to break him into a thousand pieces was to have him crucified on the cross because they did not like the image that he was reflecting back to them. So the first rejection of Jesus that we see occur in this text is that of religious leaders who hated Jesus because he revealed their sin and exposed their blasphemy, excuse me, their hypocrisy. But, but just because they hated Jesus and they wanted to see him dead didn't mean that they could actually carry that out. Even though they had convicted him of blasphemy, they didn't have the authority to actually kill Jesus. So what you see is that they take him and they deliver him over to Pilate, who did have that authority. Pontius Pilate was the appointed governor Roman governor of Palestine. He had held that position from, from 26 A.D. all the way to 37 A.D. And so for 11 years, he was the Roman governor of Palestine. And as such, that made him the longest tenured governor in that position in that part of the world. But his relationship with the Jews had not been very good. 
In fact, the whole time that he ruled in that position, there had been many uprisings. There had been a lot of rebellions and protests. And he had responded at some points with violence back toward the Jews. At other times, he had capitulated to them. And because of that, people really didn't know how to handle him. And he had a very tumultuous reign. Mark tells us that on, early on Good Friday, Jesus was bound by the Sanhedrin and taken to this man, Pontius Pilate presented to him as, as one deserving of death by the religious leadership. It's important to note that blasphemy was not a capital offense. In fact, under Roman law, it wasn't even an offense at all. It wasn't even anything that, that Jesus could be held for. So consequently, the Jewish leadership had to, had to begin to trump up charges. They had to create other things that they could get Jesus uh, in trouble with the Romans for. And so they started to make him out to be a political rebel. They started making him out to be an insurrectionist and a troublemaker. Mark doesn't record all of that information. Luke does, though, in his, in his version of the gospel and telling us what, what took place. Luke tells us that, that the religious leadership told Pilate that Jesus perverted the people, insinuating that he actively incited riots. They even said, look, Jesus says that we're not to pay Caesar any taxes, which is exactly opposite of what Jesus had said. Not only that, but they said that he claimed to be a king and that, that kind of, the kind of king he would be would be a political threat to Rome. All of these things they said against Jesus, none of them were true. Upon having Jesus in front of him, Pilate, Mark tells us, says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, It is as you say. Or as some of your versions will read, You have said so. It's a strange response, really. People kind of trip over it a little bit. What exactly was Jesus saying? Notice this. Jesus was not denying his kingship, but what he was saying is the kingdom over which I am king is different from what you think. In fact, that becomes clear in John's gospel. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says to, to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Mark goes on to say that the, that the chief priest began to heap up all kinds of charges against Jesus, accusing him of all kinds of things, but Jesus remained silent. He, he refused to defend himself. Just as he had done when the Sanhedrin had tried him on the night before, so now he does as he stands before Pilate. And Mark says that Pilate marveled at Jesus' silence. He, he couldn't understand why Jesus wouldn't defend himself. Pilate didn't understand Jesus, but he knew this. He's not guilty of anything deserving of death. In fact, in verse 10, you'll note that Pilate saw through everything that was going on, and he said, the only reason Jesus is in front of me is because the priests are envious of him. In fact, according to Luke 23, verse 4, Pilate declares of Jesus, I find no fault in this man. In fact, when you read all of the gospel accounts and you take into consideration everything that they say, you get the distinct impression that Pilate desired to set Jesus free. The question is, why didn't he? Why didn't Pilate turn Jesus loose? Why didn't he allow him to go free? He had the authority to do it. In fact, he was the only man who could. Why didn't he? Notice the second point on your outline this morning. You see, it wasn't just the religious leadership who rejected Jesus. Pilate also rejected Jesus because Jesus endangered his social position and his status. The last verse there, 
Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. Remember I said that Pilate had not always been on good terms with the Jews. The Romans, they, they valued peace. They valued harmony. They hated uprisings. They hated rebellions. And Pilate had already had to endure enough of those. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty of anything, but now he had the Sanhedrin, who was a very volatile and a very powerful body, putting pressure on him. Not only that, but according to verse 8 and verse 11, they had stirred the crowd up against Jesus, and now they also were calling for Jesus to be crucified. And so we might say that Pilate was on the horns of a dilemma. Should he satisfy his own conscience with regard to Jesus, or should he satisfy the Jews who were calling for his death? Ultimately, Pilate took the path of least resistance. After all, he probably couldn't make it through one more uprising. It would have cost him his job. And so he settled for the path that led to the crucifixion of an innocent man so that he could protect his career and maintain his status quo. Now, to be fair, it does tell us here, Mark tells us, that, that, that Pilate sought a way to appease the crowd, yet assuage his own moral conscience concerning Jesus. He devised a plan that allowed the people a choice. In fact, verse 6 tells us that that was his custom to offer, particularly at this time of year, at the time of Passover, to give the people an opportunity to set someone who had been in prison free. And so no doubt he thought to his mind, I've got the perfect setup. Because... Because this way I'm going to outfox all of them and I'm going to get out of this scenario that I find myself in. Because no matter what the people thought about Jesus, he offers them either Jesus or a man named Barabbas. And he knew that that was a bad man there. As a matter of fact, Barabbas, Mark tells us, Luke tells us as well that he was a rebel. He was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. In many respects, Barabbas was everything that Jesus had been accused of being but was not. Barabbas was. And he was already in prison. John tells us that he was a robber. Matthew tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. He was someone well known as being a bad man throughout all of Jerusalem. Pilate no doubt thought that in light of how wicked and evil Barabbas was, surely there was no way that the Jewish people would choose to release him rather than Jesus. But they did. In fact, in verses 12 through 14, you'll find out that Pilate says, what do you, who do you want, or back there, who do you want me to release to you? And they said, give us Barabbas. And then he says in verse 12, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And he says, why? What evil has he done? They cried out all the more, crucify him. Here we see the third instance. In this text where Jesus is rejected. He's been rejected by the religious leadership. He's been rejected by Pilate. Thirdly, we see that he's rejected by his own people. Why? The third point on your outline this morning is this. The people rejected Jesus because he did not meet their expectations. He did not meet their expectations. Mark tells us that the people rejected Jesus and they chose Barabbas. Kent Hughes offers his explanation as to why. In his commentary on this passage, he says, Barabbas was a grotesque form of the Messiah that Israel really wanted. He was a leading zealot. He was a political activist. He was a man of action. He was a patriot. Jesus, however, had disappointed the people with his inaction. 
As a result, the people chose lawlessness instead of righteousness. They chose violence instead of love. They chose war instead of peace. And then Hughes goes on and makes this point. He says, the world is still the same today. James Montgomery Boyce has written, he says, the world will always, always choose a robber, an insurrectionist, or a murderer to the guiltless Christ. Why? Because Barabbas is of the world and is the world. Barabbas is one of them. So, if we consider all of that, then what we come to understand is that on this good Friday morning, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is rejected by the religious leadership because he revealed their sin and exposed their hypocrisy. He was rejected by Pilate because he endangered Pilate's social position and status. And then he's also rejected by his own people because he did not meet their expectations. But what I want you to notice then is that those rejections actually lead to what I referred to earlier. Those rejections actually lead us to the story of all stories. You see, though Barabbas never utters a word in this text, and though we never know anything more about him other than what is revealed here in the Scriptures, his story is nevertheless a riveting story because it's, it's our story. It's, it's, it's the story of, of what salvation is all about. In fact, notice the last point on your outline this morning. The fourth point that I would have you to note is just this. The rejection of Jesus actually leads to the redemption of Barabbas. The rejection of Jesus leads to the redemption of Barabbas. It should be noted that Barabbas' name is actually the conjunction of two Aramaic words. The first one is bar which means son, and Abba, which is father. And so Bar-Abba, or Barabbas, is actually a word, a name that means son of the father. And as such, Barabbas is a representative of all sons and all daughters who have ever been born to fathers throughout all time. He is a representative of us. He represents you and me, and like Barabbas, all of us are sinners. As such, we are robbers of God's glory. We are insurrectionists because we have pushed God off of His rightful throne in our lives. Because of sin, as one has put it, we have murdered our own souls and we've murdered the souls of others, and as a result, we find ourselves bound in the dark prison house of sin. That's exactly where we find Barabbas in this story. That's where he is. He's in the dark prison house. He's there. He's under arrest. He's in shackles. He's in chains. He is awaiting his execution. In his commentary on this passage, Donald Gray Barnhouse encourages us to use our imaginations. He says, if we do so, he says, we can see Barabbas is sitting there stoic and somber. He's staring at his hands through which he knows in just a little while will be pierced Five-inch spikes that will put him affixed to a crossbeam at which point he will be hung up and crucified. He knows all of this awaits him. But suddenly, suddenly he hears the crowd. And the crowd is, is getting angry. And he hears their voices and they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. 
And Barabbas undoubtedly believes that the time has come for him to meet his fate. Mark tells us there in verse 7 that he's chained to some fellow rebels. And surely Barabbas thinks that his rebellion and his disregard for life has finally caught up with him. And he thinks he hears his own name. He hears, them, he hears the crowd calling out his name. And now as the jailer comes and he hears the keys in the door, as it begins to unlock and open up, the time has come for his execution. But in what could only be described as a shocking turn of events, the jailer tells Barabbas, you're set free. In fact, he goes and he looses Barabbas from his shackles from the other men and he tells them that the crowd has called for his release. Jesus of Nazareth would take his place. Can you imagine how stunned Barabbas was? Can you imagine if we, if we continue to use our imaginations for just a little bit, we can, we can see how that jailer then leads him down a dark, dank hallway. And at the end is the light of the new day, just like what we would see here. And having been kept in the darkness for so long, when he hits the light, it causes him to squint and he covers his eyes because it, it hurts his eyes to see. But suddenly he's released. And then a crowd begins to move and he gets involved with that crowd and he doesn't know exactly where they're going. But as they begin to go and as time begins to take place, he begins to hear it. He starts to hear the sound of the hammer crying down on those spikes and he knows that those spikes that are being driven through the hands of the man where he hears were spikes that were meant for him. And as he makes his way to where he can get a vision of the cross, suddenly he sees Jesus on that cross being lifted up and put down inside the hole that was prepared. And there he hangs. To his left and to his right were the two men to whom he had been chained in that prison cell. And when he looks at Calvary's cross, he realizes that man died for me. That cross was meant for me. Those nails were to have been through my hands and through my feet. And yet now Jesus hangs there on that cross and because He hangs there, I have been set free. I want you to know, Barabbas must have been thinking, that man took my place. I'm the one who should have died. I'm the one who's condemned. He didn't deserve what happened to him and yet there he is dying and here I am alive. And this is where we come back to that theme with which we began. The theme of an innocent man being condemned while a guilty man goes free and the twist is that that innocent man actually takes the place of the guilty man. What we come to realize is that Barabbas and Jesus change places. John Lawrence writes this, he says, The murderer's bonds, curse, disgrace, and mortal agony were transferred to the righteous Jesus, while the liberty and the innocence and the safety and the well-being of Christ became the lot of a murderer. This is truly a turn of events, amazing. And Barabbas couldn't take credit for any of it. He didn't deserve it. He was guilty. Rather, Barabbas is free because Jesus took his place. Barnhouse says it this way. He says, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. 
here's the good news for you and me and for all who are Christians. He said, we can say that Jesus Christ took our spiritual place. That is why we speak of substitutionary atonement. That's why we talk about vicarious suffering. Those aren't just big words that we like to throw out there for no reason. Those are big words because they carry a lot of freight. They talk about the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life in my place. He suffered what I deserved to suffer. My atonement, my standing before God has been changed because of what Jesus Christ did that I could never have done. And that is satisfy the wrath of God against my sin. This is the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's exactly what Romans 5.8 says. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we are Barabbas, He died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, he might bring us to God. Friends, that is the meaning of Christianity. It's the good news of the gospel. Every single one of us has lived in such a way that we deserve God's wrath and His curse. And God would be entirely justified to allow us to forever be under that curse and suffer His wrath. But in His amazing love, God sent His one and only Son into the world so that those who might believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why it's called good news. That's, you see, in, in, as we said earlier, in one sense, when you consider what happened to Jesus, it may be hard to understand why we call it Good Friday. But when you look at it from Barabbas' perspective, everything changes. Because you see, for Barabbas, this truly was Good Friday. Everything that happened to Jesus he deserved for it to happen to him. The scourging, the crucifixion, all of that had been reserved for Barabbas, yet Jesus had taken his place. The cross that Jesus hung on was to have been Barabbas' cross. The death that Jesus died was to have been Barabbas' death. And what we see is, though the rejections of the religious leaders and of a self-centered governor and of a wicked crowd had led to the substitution that condemned an innocent man to death while seeing a convicted man go free is anything but good from one perspective. If we were to ask Barabbas, he would tell us, that was the greatest day of my life. That's the greatest day of my life. I should have died. I should have been dead but I'm alive today because of what Jesus did for me. Brothers and sisters, if you have been saved, that is your story as well. As believers, we call it Good Friday because it was the day that our redemption was secured by the death of Jesus. So, so our text has told us the story of rejection, it's told us the story of substitution, and it has told us the story of of redemption, the question that begs to be asked is just simply this, where do you fit in that story? Have you been redeemed? Or do you continue to reject Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? You see, like some, you may be like those religious leaders. 
You reject Jesus because you hate the fact that he reveals your sin and exposes your hypocrisy. You don't like the fact that the Bible is there to serve as a mirror to your soul, and so you reject it as a result of it. Some of you may be rejecting Jesus because of that. Some of you may be sitting there rejecting Jesus this morning simply because to be known as a Christian is a threat to you. It's a threat to your way of life. It may mean that you have to actually stand up for what you believe in, and to do that might cost you the status quo and the comfort that you've come to experience in your life. Like Pilate, you may still be rejecting Jesus. Or you may be rejecting Jesus just because you're like the crowd who has drawn a box around what you think Jesus is supposed to be and who he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do for you. And at some point, you've been disappointed by what Jesus has done and how he's responded. And so as a result, you've pushed him aside and said, I don't want any part of him. Maybe that's you. I don't know what those, the whole reason for your rejection of Christ may be this morning, but I do know this. If you continue to reject him and not humble yourself before him, you choose to remain in bondage and in sin when there is pardon available for your soul. We've already talked about Barabbas. Can you imagine a scenario under which when that jailer opened the door and came in and found Barabbas chained and told him, listen, you are now free because Jesus of Nazareth is going to take your spot? Can you imagine any scenario in which Barabbas would have said, no, I want to stay here in this prison cell until my time of death has come? Can you imagine Barabbas uttering those words? I cannot. And yet, and yet... When people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what they do. That leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. To reject Jesus is to reject the redemption that he offers through his substitutionary atonement for sinners who deserve eternal death. We might even say it the opposite way, though to receive, to accept, to trust in Jesus is to receive the redemption that he offers through his substitutionary atonement for sinners who deserve eternal death. Sinclair Ferguson has provided this wonderful summary and I'll close with it. He says that Jesus was innocent but declared to be guilty. Barabbas was guilty but was treated as though innocent because Jesus died in his place. That is the definition of substitutionary atonement. That is the definition of what it means to be redeemed. And that is the heart of the gospel. Have you been redeemed? Or do you continue to reject his love for you? Your eternity, your eternity hangs on your answer to that question. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father.